Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. I was trying so hard this week, knowing that it was Marathon Sunday, to come up with some story about running that would just captivate you um, as I got up here. But all I could think about was uh, earlier this week, I went on a run, and I ran past this bakery in my neighborhood. And I pretty much just wanted to stop running and and get a pastry, but thankfully they were closed. It's one of those COVID businesses that open and they're only open like two hours a week and somehow they sell out like all the time. But uh, anyway, that's my story about running. (laughs) But (laughs) we're we're nearing um, the end, we're nearing the end of our series that we've been in. We've got this week um, and then next week and that will close out our series Taste and See. We've been exploring the relationship between our life as Christians, and what it means that we live in bodies, right? We've been honestly asking some tough questions. Is Christianity just a mental thing that we believe? Or is it a spiritual thing that we experience? Or is it just an emotional thing that we feel? Or does following Jesus have serious implications about our bodies, the things we taste, and touch and smell, the way we gather together in person, the way we live out our actual everyday lives. And obviously we believe the answer is yes, it has real serious implications for our embodied lives. But throughout history, um, Western culture in general has believed a few big lies about our bodies. The first lie that we've believed, and I think in a lot of ways we've moved past this, but it's a really important uh, moment in history, and it's called Gnosticism. It was taught by the Gnostics, and it was essentially saying that the spiritual sort of immaterial world is good. It's it's holy, it's good, while the physical, embodied, material world is, is bad. It's, it's just flesh. It leads to problems, right? The second lie that we've believed, and I think this is much more prominent in our culture and in the church today, is the myth that human beings are primarily thinking things. The primary thing that we do is think. This has led um, James K. Smith to call, it, to call human beings brains on a stick. It's like we just walk around and all that matters is what's going on in our minds. We've elevated our intellect and our intellectual capacities to be the most important thing about us. You can see this in certain Christian cultures that prioritize knowing the right doctrine over anything else. You can see this in political situations where having the right opinion about certain issues determines whether you're in or whether you're out. I don't know about you, but when a big political issue comes up, I just feel that urge to, to post on social media or to, to tell my friends, hey, look, I think the right thing about that. I'm on the right team, okay? I'm in. Um, it's, 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 that, it's that need to feel like we think the right thing so that we can be in the right circle. We've disconnected in a lot of ways our brains from our bodies so that we can think one thing, but then we actually do something completely different, right? I know intellectually in my brain that if I want to lose weight, I should probably eat healthier, you know, eat smaller portions. But when it comes down to it and that homemade Oreo ice cream is sitting in my freezer, you know my body is going to do something that my brain doesn't want me to do. Shannon, please don't stop making homemade ice cream. 
ice cream. Uh, we, we got on a kick. She borrowed our friend's ice cream maker, and so she was just making all this. And I thought, oh, great. She'll do this while we're borrowing the ice cream maker, and then we'll give it back. I won't eat ice cream ever again. And then we were walking in our neighborhood and found this KitchenAid attachment to turn our KitchenAid into an ice cream maker for five bucks. So we're going to be eating a lot more ice cream. Um, but anyway, this, this symptom of our brains doing one thing and our bodies doing another, I'm going to call that compartmentalization. It's when we compartmentalize and try to separate what's going on in our minds from what's going on in our bodies. I think in our culture this happens most often with our intellect, but really it happens whenever we focus too heavily on one aspect, whether it's our mind, our body, or our spirit. Because think about it. As much as I say, oh, we're just brains on a stick, our culture actually really cares about the body. We care a lot about body image, right? We obsess over celebrities who are in the best shape of their lives. We want to know their diet, their workout routine. We want to know how we can look like them, even if their lives is, is, are, are not emotionally healthy or spiritually healthy. The thing is, none of these aspects of our lives are bad. In fact, they're all good, and they're all created by God. The problem comes when we compartmentalize, when we elevate one over and against the others. Because here's the thing, God wants all of us, not just our souls, not just our minds, not just our bodies, but our whole self. We're invited to follow Christ with our whole selves. That's why we've been rooting this entire series in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul instructing the church in Rome on what it looks like to, to worship God. Here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul begins, first and foremost, with the body. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. But it's interesting because Paul then says, when you do that, when you offer your body as a sacrifice, that becomes a form of worship. And this translation, the NIV, says true and proper worship. But other translations actually call this spiritual worship. When you offer your body, it becomes your spiritual worship. And then... Paul ends by instructing us to renew our minds, to not conform to the, the common thinking of this day and age, but to be transformed in Christ. So do you notice how for Paul, the mind, body, and spirit all work together? Another word that I want to use for this process, the opposite of compartmentalization, is integration. Integration is when we see each of the different aspects of our lives, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, not as separate things, but as one unified whole, one whole thing. Jesus embodied this kind of integration throughout his entire life. He showed us what it can look like to be an integrated human being. And this is good news because it means that in Christ, we too can be made whole. We can be integrated as individuals we can find that, we can move from that compartmentalization to that integration and live how God created us to live. 
But here's the thing, this applies to us not only as individuals, but also as a community. We can begin to, to learn what this looks like as we live out our lives as one body. It's no accident that throughout the New Testament, one of the primary names for the church is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. There's a lot of beautiful illustrations for this in scripture. It was actually really hard for me to pick one, but I think these two verses kind of paint the picture, right? Ephesians 1. 22 to 23. God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. Simply put, Christ is the head of the church, the church is his body, and it's joined together by the Holy Spirit. And yet, even as the church, as Christ's body, we often revert back to compartmentalize the different aspects of our lives together. Sometimes the church embraces the brains on a stick mentality, right? We so heavily prioritize sermons, theology, doctrine. We teach things like, if you can just think the right things about God, then your life will be okay. Others turn to things that might feel more spiritual rather than material, right? They might, we might think things like, if I could just have that emotion time of prayer and worship, I will feel close to God again. And again, I want to be clear, neither of these are wrong. They both have value, but we were created to not merely think and believe that God is good. We were created to taste and see that God is good. We were made to touch and hear and even smell that the creator and sustainer of all things is good and is with us everywhere that we go. That's why God has created this world, this tangible, visible, edible world, so that everywhere we go, his presence and goodness can be near to us. Simple, ordinary things like water, bread, and wine can become the very means by which God comes close to us. It's through these simple, ordinary things that we encounter God, not just in our minds, not just in our spirits, but, but in our bodies in an integrated way. Now, historically, the church has called these things the sacraments, the sacraments. In the early 5th century, St. Augustine said a few words that would eventually be passed down as sort of the, the primary definition of the sacraments. Here's what St. Augustine said. Sacraments are an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Let me repeat that. Sacraments are an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. So simply put, the sacraments can be how we move from just thinking and believing in God to tasting and seeing that God is good. So before we actually get into the nitty gritty and discuss the sacraments, I want to just say a few things, just kind of generally speaking about what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the sacraments. The first is this, and I even hesitated to use the word sacrament because really what the sacraments are is they are mysteries. And I don't mean mysteries like those murder movies that we all like to watch, where it's like, who are we going to find out at the end who's the killer? And I don't mean mystery like a magic trick, like how did that pop up out of thin air. What I mean by mystery is something that's actually true and real, but we can't fully comprehend it in our, in our minds. We can't fully rationalize exactly what's happening in that thing, right? The Greek word in the New Testament is mysterion. Mysterion, right? 
And as language kind of changes over time, that Greek word in the Bible, mysterion, would eventually get translated into Latin, right? And that Latin word, what they took, mysterion, they took and said sacramentum. That's the word they used to define mystery, sacramentum, okay? So that's why in English now, we call them sacraments. But you could just as easily just call them mysteries. They're mysteries that have been passed down to us. And ultimately, they come back to the the primary mystery of the Christian faith. What's the primary mystery of the Christian faith, you ask? Well, it's Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus Christ is the primary mystery of the Christian faith. You'll see this throughout the New Testament, the mystery of faith. Why is Jesus Christ a mystery? Well, first and foremost, he's 100% fully human and at the same time, 100% fully God. I can't describe that. I can't understand that rationally. I believe that it's true, but it's, it's a mystery, right? As it says in the book of Colossians, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. How do you make something invisible visible? I, I don't know, but he does. Um, two of my professors, when I was in college, wrote a book um, called The Incarnation, all about the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Um, their names are Dr. Johnson and Dr. Clark, and I, I really liked this quote. It says, at root, the mystery of Christ is that in him, heaven and earth have been joined together. God and man, creator and creature have been united. The infinite and the finite, the immaterial and the material, the visible and the invisible have become one. So in that sense, Jesus is the original sacrament, the visible sign of the invisible God. And because Jesus is the ultimate sacrament, every other sacrament points to him. Another way to put it is these sacraments are the visible, tangible, even edible ways in which we we have relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, it would be naive of me to just keep trucking and dismiss the myriad disagreements that have occurred throughout church history with regard to the sacraments. Whole denominations, whole communities have split over what exactly are the sacraments. And while we don't have time to get into all the specifics, you might have to take a church history course if this piques your interest, um, I do just want to say that the majority of the disagreements that tend to come up over the sacraments tend to happen when we're trying to really get into the details of explaining or rationalizing what is happening, right? Take communion, for example. The, most of the disagreements come up around what exactly is this bread and this cup. Does it actually transform into the literal body and blood of Jesus? Or is it just something that we look at to remember what Jesus did in the past? And I do believe these are important distinctions and important conversations. I think at the end of the day for us in this conversation, those are not the right questions. They kind of miss the point. They miss the point because the sacraments are first and foremost mysteries, right? We don't like mystery. We prefer certainty. We want to know exactly what is happening. So we immediately try to understand what's going on around us. When, when Jesus takes bread, right, he breaks it and he hands it to his apostles and says, this is my body given for you. 
I, I have to imagine some of them were wondering, what is he talking about? Is he saying this is his literal body and blood now? Is this just a spiritual, metaphorical thing? What is going on here? We want to understand exactly what is happening, but frankly, we can't. Just like we can't comprehend how Jesus could be fully God and fully human, we also can't comprehend what's going on around the communion table, and that's okay. In fact, I think it's more than okay. It's actually good and beautiful because when we embrace the mystery, we don't have to fully understand what is happening, but we can experience it. We can embody it. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? So we just solved 200 or 2,000 years of church history. Um, so let's, let's keep moving. No, just kidding. But seriously, um, back to Jesus, Okay. Jesus is the original sacrament, the visible image of the invisible God. And thankfully, Jesus knew, because he was fully human, that we as humans would need physical experiences to remember that Jesus is with us. He was fully tempted in every way that you and I could ever be tempted. Tempted to over-intellectualize our faith. Tempted to over-spiritualize our faith, right? Jesus knew we would need tangible things to remember him. So Jesus himself chose to ordain two sacraments, two mysteries to be practiced by the church. Those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So with the rest of our time together, we're going to do not an insanely deep dive, but we're going to dive in a little bit to baptism and, and the Lord's Supper and, and look at what exactly are these? What are the tangible, visible symbols that are present in both of these? Um, and then what are the spiritual or invisible realities that they symbolize? So first, baptism. The sacrament of baptism is a visible sign of the invisible reality that we are united to Jesus Christ as beloved children of God. All baptisms refer back to Christ's baptism when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. This happened before he began his public ministry. Here's the story from the Gospel of Mark. It's such a beautiful picture. Maybe just visualize it as I read it. At the time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. I love this moment in scripture because it's actually one of the few moments where all three persons of the Trinity are clearly portrayed. Jesus, the son of God, is there in the water. God, the Holy Spirit, takes on the form of a dove and descends to be near Jesus. And the father is speaking words over Jesus. You are my son, my beloved, right? This moment will mark Jesus' identity forever. He has this physical, tangible experience to know a spiritual reality that God loves him. For the rest of his life, through the ups and downs when he's in the wilderness, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he can point back to this moment as a tangible reminder of God's love. The simplest and most compelling reason why we continue to practice the sacrament of baptism is the fact that Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus needed this physical experience to fully receive the words that his father wanted to speak to him. And when we are baptized, 
we receive the very same words that were spoken over Jesus. We receive our spiritual identity as God's beloved daughter, as God's beloved son. That is our new identity in Christ, and nothing can take that away from us through the ups and downs of life. Um, Another word that typically more theologians tend to use for this is, is the word union with Christ. Union with Christ is just a a beautiful way of saying that we are included in everything that Christ has done for us. His life, his baptism, his death, and especially his resurrection are ours now. Because of our union with Christ, we get to participate in all that Christ has done for us. Listen to this from Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism is a visible sign of this spiritual reality that we have died and been raised to new life in Christ. Let's just visualize it again for a moment. It's been a little while since I've been to, to a baptism service, but let's visualize it, right? So in baptism, there's a believer. They're, they're lowered underwater, right? This symbolizes their, their death to sin. They're, they're, they're theoretically sort of visually dying to sin, and then they're raised out of new life, raised out of the water, right, to symbolize that they have new life in Christ. When they're under the water, they're symbolically being washed, cleaned, made, made new. And then when they're, when they're raised out, they're, we're seeing a spiritual new creation in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to, to come to what a saving faith relationship in Jesus looks like. The last reality that's made, again, we're not doing a full-on deep dive, but let me just skim the surface here, um, no pun intended. But the last reality that we receive in baptism is, is something I mentioned earlier, and it's this. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Baptism is not only for the individual who's being baptized. As, as important and beautiful as that is, it's not something that we can do to ourselves alone. It's something we do in community because it's for the whole church church to be reminded of our communal identity, that we are one family. Here's Paul to the church in Corinth. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized into one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink." Baptism is a visible representation of our unity in Christ. We may have our difference politically, financially, culturally, whatever it may be, but just like the body has different parts and is still united, we are united as Christ's body by the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is this shift from being an individual disciple to being a son or daughter who is part of a bigger family with a lot of brothers and sisters and weird cousins, right? That's what it means to be baptized. That's why Jesus himself was baptized and also ordained the sacrament of baptism. He passed it on to us in one of his most famous teachings, the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. 
If you've yet to be baptized, I just want to say the invitation is always open to you. We tend to do them here like on a needs basis. So when someone desires to be baptized, we'll, we'll make a, a time and a place to do that. It's a way for you to tangibly and visibly experience and for us, your church family, to visibly experience three realities. Let me just summarize. One, you're a beloved son or daughter of God. Two, you have union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And three, we have unity, despite our differences, with one another in the body of Christ. So, that's baptism, all right? We're going to move on to the second sacrament of the church. Uh, it goes by many names. You've probably heard it said different ways throughout your life if you've been around different churches. But here, here's a couple of them. The Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's table, the breaking of the bread, right? It goes by many names, but whatever you call it, here's, here's what it is. The, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a visible sign of an invisible reality that Christ is present with us here and now. At Missio Dei, we usually call it communion or the Lord's table, but each of the different names for this sacrament really actually convey, I believe, something beautiful and something important about it. They each highlight one or two visible aspects that communicate spiritual realities. So as we begin to wrap up our time this morning, I kind of want to race through a couple of the names for the Lord's Supper and just see what, where are they in the Bible and also what might they show us about what's happening around the table, all right? So I'm almost done, but I'm just going to go through four names. So buckle up. We're going we're gonna to race through these. It's going to be great. Um, let's start with the Lord's Supper, all right? Calling it the Lord's Supper points back to the Last Supper, the Last Supper of Jesus, when Jesus shared his final Passover meal with the apostles the night before he was crucified. The Last Supper is this moment where Jesus ordained bread. He took bread and wine. He blessed it, and he called them symbols of his body and blood. Famously, three of the Gospels retell this story, and they almost all use the same language for this sentence, and this is where I really want to focus our time. It says this, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't know that there's one verse in Scripture that has so much depth so much packed into one single sentence. But here's a couple things I think we need to see here in this verse. First, Jesus is using bread and wine as tangible, visible symbols of his body and blood. Again, this is a mystery. We don't know exactly how the broken bread is Christ's body. We don't know exactly how the wine is Christ's blood, but we just take Jesus at his words. By the Holy Spirit's power, Christ is present in the broken bread and in the cup of wine. But next, after he says, this is my body or this is my blood, he says, do this in remembrance of me. What does Jesus mean when he says, do this? Do this in remembrance of me. Well, he's not only referring to eating a piece of bread or drinking a sip of wine. He's referring to the entire act of gathering around a table like he was doing with his apostles, gathering around the table, sharing a meal in community, being together with Christ present as the host of the meal. I'm going to say more about that in a minute when we talk about the name of the table. But let's keep going. Second, 
So Christ says, do this, and then he says, in remembrance of me, right? What is he saying when he says, in remembrance? Well, he's not only talking about doing something with his memory, like with, with him in mind. He's, he's saying that you want to bring this past event, this, this table, this Lord's Supper, take that past event and bring it with you into the present with an awareness that that we're almost reenacting that very event. Um, N.T. Wright has a really good book. It's called The Meal Jesus Gave Us, and he's a very, very smart theologian. So he puts it really, really well. He says this, the hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not merely mean bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefits from such actualization. So when we celebrate, when we call it the Lord's Supper, we're bringing the Last Supper into the present moment. Um, all right, the second name for communion. That's the Lord's Supper. Second name is communion. Communion. This, this type of experience is integrated mind, body, and soul. Um, this is what led the Apostle Paul to use the word communion to describe it, okay? Melissa actually mentioned this word last week, so I learned something new. Um, the Greek word koinonia, koinonia, can be translated fellowship, like when we gather together for fellowship, but it can also be translated as communion, or how it gets translated in, in the NIV is participation, participation. Here's Paul again. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Communion, the, the name communion is meant to visualize for us a participation. A participation that we experience when we come together as a family. We participate as the body of Christ. Um, but also we participate in, in this symbolic meal, this bread and this cup participating in the body and blood of Christ. That's communion, all right? Eucharist. We got Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. Another name that's commonly used here for this sacrament is Eucharist. And it comes straight from the sentence that I read earlier, right? Jesus took bread and then he gave thanks. The Greek word there is, is Eucharist. He gave thanks. It could also be translated blessing. What we see when we call this meal the Eucharist is that it's meant to be more of a Thanksgiving feast than a funeral luncheon. This is a time when we come together to taste and see God's goodness, and we give thanks for that. We give thanks that God is with us. Now, there is a time and a place to reflect on our brokenness, to reflect on our sin, to reflect on Jesus's broken body, but that should actually happen before we come and receive communion not during. Here's Paul again to the church in Corinth. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. There's a sense in which we're meant to be made right with one another, be made right, discern the body of Christ before we come to this table. As I was thinking of this, I was thinking of like when we go um, to our family or friend's house, maybe for like Thanksgiving dinner. And you can just show 
up, even if you're like mad at your brother or sister and like not in a good place with them. And you can do that, but that's gonna make the meal kind of weird and kind of awkward and not a great Thanksgiving feast. But if you can call them or, or get a hold of them maybe a week in advance or even a couple days in advance and say, hey, you know, I, something doesn't feel right between us. I wanna apologize for something I did or said or I'm hurt by something you did or said and you can be brought back. Think of how much more beautiful that meal, that communion, uh, Thanksgiving feast that you have with them can be. The same is true of this table, right? When we examine ourselves, when we make things right between one another, before we come to the table, then we can fully embrace that this, this is meant to be a time of feasting, not a time for a funeral. All right. The Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. The last one I want to talk about is the table, the table. I love calling this the table or the Lord's table, right? Because it reminds us that Christ is present, not just in the bread um, and the cup, but also around the table among us, right? Again, when Jesus took bread and poured out wine for his friends, they were sharing the Passover meal. They were sharing a whole feast. And that's, when he, that's what he told them to do in remembrance of him. He wasn't just talking about eating a little piece of bread and, and dipping it in a little bit of juice, as beautiful as that can be. I, I believe we should continue doing that. But he was also telling them to gather around their own tables, to share meals in, in memory, like remembering that Christ is with them, right? I think um, we miss this often, that this isn't just meant to be something we do on Sundays. This is something that flows out into our everyday lives. Uh, David Fitch has a great book called Faithful Presence, and I love what he says about the Lord's table. He says, the Lord's table is about presence. Surely it's about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around the table where we eat. The table on Sunday morning trains us to discern Christ's presence in all the other places we eat during the week. I love that. I love that. What we do on Sundays sends us out to discern Christ's presence around every table that we eat. What Fitch um, is expressing here might be what we might call the difference between the capital S sacraments and the lowercase s sacramental things in our everyday lives. What we do together on Sunday flows into Monday through Saturday. It's not necessarily a capital S sacrament, but it is sacramental in that it points us back, right? Everything we do in our Sunday worship shapes us from Monday through Saturday. Um, there's a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary where Tish Warren kind of reflects on just one day in her life, just kind of the everyday normal things that she experiences in a normal day, right, as a mother and, and as a writer. She actually devotes a whole chapter of the book to the act of reheating soup for lunch, um, which I think is so funny, right? Because is there anything just more simple, mundane, boring than just you're working from home or you're doing your thing, it's all right, it's lunchtime, you throw the soup in the microwave, right? It's just, there's, there's nothing beautiful or special or sacred about that, but actually what Tish shows us, because um, she, she looks back, she remembers as she goes to you know, throw her soup in the microwave and reheat it, she has this memory of, of going to the table and receiving the Eucharist every single Sunday. And um, something about how she has met God at the communion table helps her to see that something deeper is happening as she reheats her lunch. Here's something that she, she writes. I think it's beautiful. 
The Eucharist is the Thanksgiving feast of the church. And it is out of that communal practice of Thanksgiving that my lunchtime prayer of thanks flows. The Eucharist, our gathered meal to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, transforms each humble meal into a moment to recall that we receive all of life from soup to salvation by grace. As such, these daily moments are sacramental. Not that they are sacraments themselves, but that God meets us in and through the earthy material world in which we dwell. God meets us in and through the earthy material world in which we dwell. If you remember one thing from what I've shared this morning, I want you to remember that, that not only through the waters of baptism or the bread and wine or when we gather around the table, God wants to meet us in and through the earthy material world in which we dwell, in the water of baptism, in the bread and wine, at communion, even in reheated soup. God meets us not just spiritually or mentally, but in our bodies. Amen? Let's pray. God, um, just pray over, over us and that we might see um, and hear and taste and touch you, not only spiritually or mentally, but in our bodies, around this table, around the table when we meet with friends and family, even when we reheat our lunch and we're alone, may that be a moment when we can experience a visible, tangible sign of, of your invisible presence with us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.